This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 15, Kamsa Goes Down. Last episode was dedicated entirely to Krishna and his gopi lovers. Since we are getting the story as it was told to King Parikshit, we also got Parikshit's reaction to the gopi's infidelity, mostly shock and horror. Parikshit expressed the question we were all thinking when we heard the story. If Krishna came to earth to restore Dharma, then how could he justify having an orgy in the woods with the wives of all his fellow cowherders? Vyasa's son, Sri Sukha, assures us that this is perfectly okay. After all, Krishna is God, so who are we to judge his actions? Krishna incarnated on earth just for fun, and brought no karma from past lives with him, nor could any of his actions in this lifetime accrue any new karma. King Pariksha was content with this explanation, and Sukha went further to warn us not to try this at home. Ordinary mortals are all subject to the rules of Dharma and will certainly suffer for our sins, so we should never even think of doing the things Krishna did. We get the further reassurance that no real damage was done, since Krishna used his yogic powers to deceive all the cuckolded husbands and dishonored fathers and brothers, making them think that their wives, sisters, and daughters had never left home. Having established his manhood in such a spectacular way, it was time for Krishna to get involved in politics and settle some scores. There was one more demon attack, this time in the form of a bull named Arishta. Krishna was able to quickly dispatch the bull by a blow to the head, and following his attack, he moved the tribe of Gopas from Vrindavan back to Vraja. Just as sage Vyasa intervenes from time to time in the Mahabharata to affect the course of the story, the Bhagavata Purana also has a meddling holy man by the name of Narada, Brahma's wandering son. We met Narada before, when he visited Krishna's uncle Kamsa and warned him that Devaki would give birth to an avatar of Vishnu. This time, Devarishi Narada again paid a visit to Kamsa and informed him that Devaki's eighth child was not the girl he had killed in the prison cell. He told Kamsa that her true child was a boy named Krishna, who was living among the cowherds in Vraja. Armed with this information, Kamsa once again ordered Vasudeva and Devaki to be shackled and imprisoned, then he began plotting an elaborate means of killing Krishna and his brother and eliminating the entire tribe of cowherds. The Gopananda was still a feudal subject of Mathura, and so Kamsa arranged a sacrifice to Shiva along with the tournament and invited Nanda to bring tribute and attend the great ceremony. Kamsa called on his wrestlers and instructed them to kill Vasudeva's sons when they arrived at the ceremony. As added insurance, he also called on his master of elephants, Armahaut, to post the largest, craziest elephant at the entrance of the stadium and to set the elephant to attack Krishna and the Gopas. The Maha protested, however, and asked Kamsa how he could order the deaths of his own nephews. In reply, Kamsa revealed a secret about his birth. It turned out that once, while King Ugrasena was away, a Gandharva named Drumilla was invisibly floating around the queen's garden, and he decided to make love to the queen. The Gandharva was able to read the queen's mind and he knew that she was devoted to her husband, and so Drumilla disguised himself as King Ugrasena and approached her. Queen Pavanreka had been eagerly awaiting her husband's return, and she did not suspect a thing. Thus, Drumilla made love to her, and only after they were done copulating did he assume his original form. Queen Pavanreka was outraged at this violation and cursed the Gandharva. Drumilla assured her that there was nothing illegal about mortal women consorting with Gandharvas, and that her son would be handsome, intelligent, and powerful. 
Pavan Reka was not consoled, and she cursed him, saying, You have broken the bounds of Dharma. You are a sinner, an adharmi, and your son will be cruel and criminal. You will have no virtue in him, and you will never have the blessings of the Brahmins or the Rishis. Annoyed, Drumilla compounded the curse, saying, My son will be the mortal enemy of your clan, and then the Gandharva vanished. That child was, of course, Kamsa. Later, the meddling Rishi, Narada, came by and told Kamsa this story. And ever since, he was the dedicated enemy of the Yadava clan. Perhaps King Ugrasena had Devaki with another wife, because Kamsa considered himself no relative of Devaki or her children, and thought it no crime to have them all killed. His plans in order, Kamsa sent a courtier named Akura to Gokula to invite the Gopas, and Krishna especially, to attend the ceremonies in Mathura. Although he was Kamsa's servant, Akura also recognized Krishna's greatness and became his devotee. He drove Krishna and Balaram in his own chariot back to Mathura, while Nanda and the Gopas followed behind with carts loaded with tribute for the king. The Gopis, of course, were all heartbroken at Krishna's departure. We get no mention of what their husbands thought of this outpouring of emotion. As Krishna entered Mathura, he saw an immensely wealthy city. The city gates were made of solid crystal, fitted with golden shutters. The immense granaries were made of shining brass and copper, and there were countless mansions, gardens, and guest houses. The women of Mathura all froze in their tracks when they caught a glimpse of Krishna. They all lusted after him, mouths hanging open as he walked by. Krishna came across a washerman, or Dobi, who was carrying fine clothes to the palace. Krishna accosted him, saying, Friend, give us some of these fine clothes you carry. I say to you, we certainly deserve to wear such clothes, and if you give them to us, great fortune will befall you. The Dobi was the king's man, however, and he rudely refused Krishna's request, saying, These are the king's garments. You shouldn't dare to ask me for them. You idiots, if the king's soldiers hear you, they will clap you in irons strip you naked, or even kill you for your temerity. Be gone, you louts. Get away from me. Irritated, Krishna plucked the man's head from his neck with his fingers. The dobi's corpse fell to the ground, gushing blood. His servants dropped the clothes they carried and scattered in all directions. Krishna calmly picked up some fine clothes for himself, his brother, and their companions, leaving the rest on the ground. Other vendors either more discerning than the dobi, or perhaps intimidated by the violence, were more forthcoming. They competed in giving Krishna garlands of flowers and fine things to eat. Krishna then came across a hunchbacked woman carrying oils and perfumes. Krishna asked her her name and requested some sandalwood paste. The woman said her name was Trivakra, and she was the king's masseuse. She offered him everything she had. In gratitude, Krishna placed his foot on top of her foot, then put his hands on her head and pulled, causing her crooked spine to straighten up perfectly. Everyone noticed that without this defect, she was extremely beautiful. Trivakra begged Krishna to come home with her so she could repay him more fully for his assistance. Krishna had to move on, however, but he promised he would return to her brothel as soon as his business with the king was taken care of. A major part of the Shiva sacrifice ritual was an enormous jewel-encrusted bow. This bow was on display near the stadium, and Krishna went there to have a look. There were a number of strong guards protecting the bow, and Krishna pushed them aside, picked up the bow, and strung it in a flash. As the crowd of townspeople watched, Krishna pulled back the bowstring, pulled it past his ear, and snapped Shiva's bow into two pieces. A thunderclap rent the air, reaching Kamsa's palace and striking him with fear. The soldiers ran at Krishna, but Krishna picked up the two halves of Shiva's bow and used them to beat the soldiers to death, 
blood spraying everywhere, their screams filling the air. The brothers then calmly walked away, toured the city a little more, until the sunset. Then they returned to the Gopas camp in the suburbs to sleep for the night. The townspeople all warned Krishna what Kamsa had planned for him the next day, but he was unperturbed, sleeping soundly all night. Kamsa, on the other hand, was receiving news of how easily Krishna had broken Shiva's bow and killed his guards, and slept fitfully that night, seeing omens of death everywhere. The next morning, the great tournament began. All of the townspeople took their seats in the stadium, and King Kamsa put on a brave face and took his seat of honor. Nanda then led his gopas toward the stadium, bearing tribute for the king and accompanied by Krishna and Balram. As they approached the stadium, the maha prodded the mad elephant towards Krishna. The massive beast rushed towards Krishna, who stood his ground until it was upon him. Then he struck it a stunning blow on the head, ripped its tusks out, and beat the animal to death with its own tusks. Krishna then strolled into the stadium, covered in the blood and gore of the elephant, with one tusk resting on his shoulder. Everyone in the stadium could clearly tell that this was no ordinary mortal walking in their midst. The wrestlers then called out to Krishna and Balram, challenging them to a wrestling match. After trading a few blows, Krishna body-slammed the first wrestler, killing him, and then tore the second wrestler into two pieces, while Balram crushed his first opponent and kicked the head off his second. After this bloody spectacle, the rest of the wrestlers ran off in terror. Their fear of the tyrant now dispelled, the people of Mathura all cheered Krishna's victory over Kamsa's wrestlers. Kamsa was now too outraged to be scared, and called out to his guards, saying, Kill these vile boys, seize the property of Nanda and put him in fetters, kill the deceitful Vasudev, and kill my father Ugrasena, who conspired against me. Kill them all, kill them now. Before he finished saying this, Krishna flew up to the dais where Kamsa sat in his golden throne. Seeing death flying at him, Kamsa drew his sword and picked up his shield. Using the magic powers he inherited from his Gandharva father, Kamsa flew through the air from Krishna, but Krishna flew after him. As he flitted from ledge to ledge, his crown fell from his head. Immediately, Krishna seized Kamsa by the hair and dashed him down to the ground and flew after him, landing squarely on top of the demon king, killing him instantly. Roaring, his eyes crimson, Krishna dragged Kamsa's body around the arena. In a wild and primitive ceremony, Krishna raged, howled, sang, and danced on Kamsa's corpse. Even wicked Kamsa was fortunate to have died by Krishna's hand, because he was purged of all his sins and his soul was absorbed into Krishna. Now Kamsa's eight brothers surged at Krishna to avenge their dead brother, but Balaram picked up one of the elephant tusks and came at them, beating them to death in moments. The townspeople were in shock at the sudden change in the political scene. The royal house had been wiped out in minutes, and the former king was still in shackles in a dungeon. Krishna took charge and ordered the freedom of both King Ugrasena and his parents Vasudev and Devaki. Meanwhile, Kamsa's two wives fled Mathura and returned to their father, Kamsa's old ally, King Jarasand. When Vasudev and Devaki were released, they could not believe that these two godlike creatures were their own sons. Krishna employed his Maya Shakti to draw a veil of ignorance over them so they would accept him and Balram as their sons and take their devotions. Krishna begged their forgiveness for having taken so long to come to their rescue and their hearts melted. They tearfully embraced their lost children. Once Devaki released him from her embrace, Krishna proclaimed his grandfather Ugrasena king of the Yadavas. 
As news spread of their liberation, the numerous exiled Yadavas returned to the capital to support their king. The city and kingdom entered a golden age with the restored king Ugrasena and Krishna and Balram as its protectors. Krishna sent Nanda back to Vraja with rich gifts, and his natural parents enlisted Brahmins to perform the Upanayanam, or twice-born ceremony, for Krishna and Balram. The two boys had been raised as Shudras, but were in fact Kshatriyas, and as such needed to be endowed with the sacred thread. Finally, to get them caught up with a proper Kshatriya upbringing, the boys were sent to live with the Guru, who taught them the Vedas, politics, astrology, and warfare. Both were exceptional students, exhausting their teacher's knowledge and mastering every subject in just 64 days. Following his graduation, Krishna's thoughts turned to his cousins, the Pandavas, in Hastinapur. At this point, they were still in training with the sage Drona and their cousins, the Kauravas. Remember, the Pandavas were Krishna's kinsmen because Krishna's father, Vasudev, was brother to the Pandava's mother, Kunti. Thus, Yudhishthira, Bhima, and Arjun were Krishna's first cousins. Krishna went to the courtier Akura and asked him to pay a visit to Hastinapur and find out how the orphan Pandavas were being treated in their uncle's court. Akura duly went to Hastinapur and attended King Dhritarashtra's court. He was quickly able to ascertain that the young orphans were precocious and virtuous, but that their uncle doted on his own sons to an unnatural degree. Akura also met with Kunti, who, realizing that her own nephew was Vishnu's avatar, begged for his protection for her helpless sons. Shortly before returning to Mathura, Akura even gave King Dhritarashtra a speech, entreating him to treat his nephews fairly. The king listened to him, praised his wisdom, but as usual, none of the words sank in. Around the same time, Kamsa's two wives returned to their father Jarasand, king of Magadha. When he heard of the death of his son-in-law, Jarasand was furious. He immediately called up an enormous army and prepared to march on Mathura to get revenge on the rebels. The precise size of this army is described as 23 oxahinis, about 1 million elephants, a million chariots, 1.5 million cavalry, and 2.5 million infantry. When news of this great army on the march reached Mathura, the people all flew into a panic. Krishna, of course, was unfazed. He knew his purpose on earth was to rid the world of demonic forces, and these vast armies were full of such reincarnated asuras. As Krishna looked out at the approaching armies, contemplating their destruction, two brilliant chariots flashed down from the sky. Both Krishna and Balaram remembered them from past lives, during which they used these same heavenly chariots to rid the earth of evil. The brothers found their white armor in the chariots and prepared for battle. Krishna raised his conch, the Panchanjanya, and blew a blast on it like it was the end of an age. A wave of shock swept through the enemy and they trembled. Jarasan looked at the two brothers side by side with the puny army behind them and cried out in fury, Krishna, scoundrel, villain, murder of my daughter's husband, but you are just a boy and alone and I cannot fight you. Run, little boy, while you can. In typical pre-battle repartee, Krishna responded, Real Kshatriyas do not brag, but show their valor and manliness by their deeds. Your words sound like the pitiful moans of a dying man. Jarasand ordered his vast forces to surround Krishna's tiny army and showered them with arrows. Krishna picked up Vishnu's bow, the awesome Saringa, and plucked its string. The earth shook and Jarasand's demon army hesitated. Strapping on an inexhaustible quiver, Krishna returned fire with an endless flurry of arrows, slaughtering the army. 
Meanwhile, Balaram waded into the enemy, wielding the Halayuda, an absurd-looking plowshare weapon which spewed fire and shot swords in all directions. Within minutes, they had wiped out the entire army. Balram, filled with bloodlust, then captured the lone survivor, King Jarasand himself, and was about to kill him when Krishna stepped in. Krishna told Balram that Jarasand must be allowed to live, because he could muster many more such armies, and thus bring together vast numbers of incarnated asuras in one place for Krishna and Balram to exterminate. And so, Jarasand was allowed to walk away from the battle. At first, Jarasand was utterly defeated, and did not set out for home. Instead, he headed for the forest, where he intended to renounce his life of evil. But along the way, he was greeted by some generals and allies who had not made it to the battle in time, and they convinced him that his defeat was only the working off of some bad karma, and that surely this run of bad luck could not go on. They should give it another try and put an end to this rebellion. Sullen and grim, Jarasand agreed and returned to his kingdom to prepare a new army. Krishna and Balram returned to Mathura in glory, bearing the weapons and treasure of their defeated enemy and offering it to the king. Not much later, Jarasand returned with another army and was again defeated. This happened 17 times in total. The numbers of enemy dead must have exceeded 85 million casualties. Now, totally obsessed with destroying Krishna's forces, Jarasand assembled his 18th army and this time joined forces with a foreign army led by the Black Greek, Kalayavana. This presumably was one of Alexander's generals getting involved in Indian politics. The Black Greek brought along a mercenary army of 35 million Malechas. As this massive allied army set up camp, dwarfing the city of Mathura, Balram got worried. Krishna pointed out that the enemy could overrun the city's defenses with sheer numbers. Balram said, we would need an impregnable fortress and an invincible ally to defeat this force. Krishna's eyes lit up and he said, we shall have both. First, Krishna summoned the divine architect of Devaloka, Vishvakarman, and together they created a luxurious fortress city in the ocean near the coast of modern Gujarat. The city was named Dwarka and Krishna magically transported all the citizens of Mathura to this new and fabulous capital. Krishna ordered Balaram to stay with the people in Dwarka and help allot their new homes and administer the city while he returned to Mathura to face Kalayavana, the black Greek, alone and unarmed. Kalayavana saw Krishna emerge from Mathura, unarmed and wearing a garland of flowers. Krishna was partially revealed in his divine form, with four arms and red eyes. When the black Greek saw him alone and unarmed, he dropped his own weapons and walked towards Krishna to fight him one on one. Instead of fighting, Krishna turned and ran. Kalayavana ran after him, barely keeping up, but determined to catch him and finish him off. He yelled, This is not how real warriors fight. Stand and face me if you dare. Krishna ran up a hill and then darted into a cave. Minutes later, the panting Greek followed him into the cave and saw in the darkness a sleeping form. Thinking it was Krishna, he kicked the sleeping figure, yelling at him to quit pretending to be asleep and fight. The sleeping man was not Krishna, however. Krishna had run behind him and was hiding in the shadows. The sleeping man awoke, looked at the Greek, and fire flashed from his eyes, instantly burning Kalayavana to ashes. The sleeping man was in fact an ancient sage king from the past, named Muchukunda. Muchukunda was a king back during the wars of the Devas and Asuras. During this time, while the Rishis sat in meditation and prayer, the Asuras roamed the land and hunted down the helpless holy men. 
King Muchukunda volunteered to be protector of the Rishis. This Muchukunda did for an entire epoch, tirelessly defending the holy men from the roving Asuras. Finally, Shiva's son, Subramanya, undertook the protection of the Rishis, and Muchukunda was allowed to retire. The grateful devas offered to grant him any boon he desired except salvation, which not even the devas could offer. Since Muchukunda had renounced everything to protect the holy men, all his family and loved ones had long since died. All he desired was rest. He requested that he be allowed to sleep until the Kali Yuga, when Vishnu would come to earth and bring salvation. So the devas granted Muchukunda his wish, saying that anyone who disturbed him from his sleep would be killed instantly. After waking up and killing the black Greek, King Muchukunda looked around and found Krishna in the cave, still in his Vishnu forearmed form. The bedazzled king asked who he was. Krishna replied, Most honored one, my births, deeds, and names are so many that not even I can recount them all. You might count the specks of dust on the earth, but not the number of my births. But let me tell you about this advent of mine. Brahma came to me to say that the Asuras, born as Kshatriyas and other demons, overran the world. He said Dharma was in danger of perishing entirely unless earth was rid of her burden. I have come to lighten the earth's burden by making rivers of blood flow here. I incarnated myself in the house of Yadu, and I am called Vasudeva. I slew the Asura Kalanemi, born as Kamsa of Mathura, and many other devils in the world. Now, king, the fire from your eyes has consumed Kalayavana. Long ago, before you slept, you worshipped me devoutly. As I love my bhaktas, I came here to bless you. Muchukunda's heart sang. He knew the visitor to his cave was the Lord Narayana himself. He prostrated at Krishna's feet and spoke to him in a voice full of joy. Krishna offered to grant him any wish he desired, but the ancient king only asked to be saved. Krishna said, Great king, lord of all the earth, your mind has found purity and resolve. I offered you any boon you wanted, but you were not tempted. I was not testing you, O king, but only showing how a bhakta with true devotion can never be tempted or corrupted by worldly pleasures. Those who practice meditation and yoga, but do not have bhakti, the subtle desires in their hearts remain undestroyed, and they inevitably turn back to pleasure and the gratification of the senses. Go anywhere you want, with your heart absorbed in me. I bless you that you shall have unshakable devotion to me, wherever you are in every circumstance. When you were king, you hunted and killed many innocent creatures in the forest. These sins cling to you, and you must burn them with the fire of worship. Control your senses, submit to me, and in your next birth you will be born as a great Muni, with universal love for all living things. In that life you will find my transcendental being, which is beyond karma. With this blessing, Muchukunda left the cave and noticed that the trees, plants, animals, and men had all diminished in size, and he knew the Kali Yuga was near. The king sought out the Himalayas, where he found an ashram to worship Vishnu and do penance. I find it interesting that all the bad guys who did not believe in Krishna and attempted to kill him were, in their deaths, rewarded with immediate salvation, while Krishna's devotees, even the super-virtuous like Muchukunda, were stuck with doing penance for the rest of their lives and even with being reborn before finally being allowed salvation. I would think Muchukunda would have been better off trying to kill Krishna than worship him, but I suppose it doesn't really work that way. Meanwhile, Krishna also left the cave and single-handedly took on the 35 million man army of Kalayavana and killed them all. 
and then returned to Dwarka with the treasure and weapons of that vast army. Not long after, Jarasand also arrived with his 18th army. This time, Krishna and Balram both went to face Jarasand's army. Instead of fighting, they ran from him. King Jarasand pursued the two brothers with his army until they ran up a hill and were totally surrounded. Jarasand ordered the army to set fire to the woods and burn the two brothers out. The fire consumed the entire hill, but the brothers simply leapt into the air and were able to fly away. Jarasand, however, thought he had finally triumphed over Krishna and returned to Magadha with his army. From what we can tell in the Bhagavata Purana, this ruse of letting Jarasand think Krishna and Balram were dead lasted only long enough for Jarasand to return home with his army in triumph. Immediately after that, the story turns to account for the brothers' adventures in the international marriage market. Next episode, we'll see how Krishna acquired his number one wife, Rukmini, and then picked up another 16,000 wives. We'll also get into a few more adventures with Balaram, and after that, I think we'll be ready to get back to the Pandavas, who must be getting restless in their father-in-law's palace in Panchala. Thanks for listening. <laughs>